0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra Podcast. I am Alok Prasanna Kumar. I am one of the co-hosts of the Ganatantra Podcast. Uh, today, Sir, you could not be with us due to a last-minute obligation, but we are very honored to have a very special guest on our podcast today, uh, Mr. Rahul Sagar. Rahul Sagar is the author of the book. Sorry, is the author of the book, The Progressive Maharaja. Sir Madhav Rao's hints on the art and science of government. Uh, Rahul is a professor at uh, the N- at NYU at Abu Dhabi, where he teaches political science. Welcome to the Ganatantra podcast, Rahul.
0: Thanks very much, Alok.
1: Uh, I must say I really enjoyed reading your book. Uh, I think this is one part of Indian history which I think back to my history classes. I think back even to legal history classes. Some of this part tends to get skipped over. And I've been rereading and, you know, a lot of material, and I realized you said this on another podcast about To Raise a Fallen People, which is of course Rahul's other book, which I'd also recommend a lot of people read. You mentioned that this period between 1850 to say about 1900, uh, post-mutiny, pre say the Bengal partition, explains a lot of what happens in the 20th century. And I think is an important period in uh, Indian history. But before we get to that, and we ask all our guests this question, uh, what made you put down? Obviously, this is T. Madhav Rao's book, but what what made you take up this task of editing his writing, putting it all together in a systematic order? And of course, you've given the preface to the book as well.
0: Thanks, Alok. Yeah, I you know when I uh, stumbled across uh, the uh, the early version of this of this manuscript, uh, I hadn't yet found the original in the archives. I'd found like a garbled modern version of it. Um, it immediately sort of struck me as very unusual because uh very little was being produced and um and uh, pursued in terms of thinking about governance in the 19th century and that's what our 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 uh, kind of our uh, presumption is because we think the English were ruling and Indians were generally speaking quiet subjugated and um uh, inactive. And when I came across this manuscript, I instantly thought to myself, well, wow, not only is it interesting in its own right, it also overturns a lot of what we think about um, uh, how, how India developed and uh, the role of uh, the place of ideas and uh, and statesmen in the 19th century. And so I sort of went after it when I, when I had this uh, uh, glimpse of it. And it took a number of years to actually track it down. I was able to find it in Bengaluru. And uh, uh, once I found it, Uh, it uh, and all the supporting documentation which uh, for which I used archives around the world especially in Baroda uh, but also in Bombay or in Mumbai and and London that gave me the ability to not just track his story but also to understand why he did what he did.
1: Well that's very interesting because I remember reading an extract of your book on scroll which carries the extracts of a lot of books and uh i use it's usually a great recommendation engine for me without witty, uh without willing and the story itself was fascinating enough uh that i said i have to read this book and to me what caught my eye actually is that this is not just a historical artifact you make a very specific mention that justice rama joyce mentions that narendra modi the current prime minister of india had recommended the book to him as chief minister uh, that was a very interesting and completely unexpected link. Maybe for our audience, we could explain how that how that came to be.
0: Yeah, there's a it's a it's a sort of complicated story because uh, what happened was in the 1980s, there was a rediscovery in Gujarat of this um, garbled text that uh, Sayaji Rao's aides hurriedly published. In the 1890s and early 1900s, in the first decade of the of the 1900s, uh, there are a couple of editions. Uh, these were circulated mostly amongst the um, arist- aristocracy in Gujarat and what is now Madhya Pradesh. And um, these these copies were valued, but they were very few in number, and um, they eventually sort of got lost in this longer story that I'm sure we'll come to as we go forward as to why the 19th century was forgotten. And um, uh, in in the 1980s, this uh, manuscript was sort of rediscovered by bureaucrats in Gujarat, who then pushed for it to be published uh, in this garbled form still. But at least they made this very important effort. And it was circulated uh, amongst uh, uh senior uh, bureaucrats and also to the various chief ministers and political figures as here's something that's authentic that's part of our own tradition our own understanding of good governance this is not coming to you from the world bank or from the outside or from some consultant it's 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 our kind of heritage and um you know the strong pride that Gujarat has in Baroda's achievements and so um uh, uh the, the prime, prime minister modi was one of the people that was then eventually as he as he circulated in this world he was handed a copy and it clearly had a very significant impact on him he passed on his copy to uh, mr ramajois who was interested in justice ramajois who was interested in uh indian statecraft and was thinking about arthashastra and so on and he said well here's a modern version read this and uh, uh, Justice Ramajoris was kind of really taken aback by what he saw, He, he, he so much so that he ended up kind of publishing uh, uh, his own version, taking different bits and pieces and trying to explain them. Because as I said, the original that the uh, that the, the, the Gujarat bureaucracy was dealing with was a garbled version. So if you just gave that to someone, people would be a bit confused. The chapters are out of sequence. So Justice Ramajoris tried to put some sense into it. And he had two people write uh, um, prefaces to it, and they're both wonderful prefaces. One was the president, uh, Abdul Jai Kalam, who wrote just a beautiful, lovely, touching, heartfelt introduction talking about um, the example his own father had set for him in terms of probity and what he valued greatly in Madhava um, um, uh, lectures or his remarks on the importance of honesty, integrity, and decency in public life. Uh, and then there was uh, um, uh, Prime Minister Modi at that time, Chief Minister Modi's remarks, which praised um, uh, Madhava Rao's uh, lectures for their emphasis on the nuts and bolts of governance, particularly this one aspect, which it's very telling that he cares a lot about: uh, picking the right kinds of people, building durable teams, and backing them up to the hilt. So not swaying with public opinion and uh, and uh, playing favorites, but having you know uh, this uh, uh, loyal, tight knit um a set of, uh, of capable individuals who will work for you and that's in some ways been his signature actually over his career and um, and and you can see why he would have found this book appealing so these are the two things that i found in uh, uh, justice rama joyce's uh, Version. So first, I found the garbled one, then I found Justice Rama Joyce as well. And I said, I've got now that I know s- these folks and these important figures have read it and agree with me that it's kind of unique and interesting. Uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and, you know, look for it. And it took much longer than I expected, but I, I did eventually find it.
1: And and I think uh, what interests me is, if, as somebody who's, who has personally praised this book, who has found it useful, I would have thought, and no disrespect to your work, maybe the government of India might have come out with a version earlier than you did. But I guess they didn't uh, actually find the original version that you inevitably end up, ended up with.
0: Yeah, the problem is the original version, so the, the original handwritten manuscript hmm. went from Madhava Rao to his son, Ananda hmm. Rao. And Ananda right. Rao was the, was the divan of Mysore hmm. and retired in, at that point, Bangalore, now Bengaluru. And um, at some point, not him, but his uh, descendants handed en masse in bulk okay. his library to uh, the mythic society. And um, um, th- these must have been loose documents that someone looking at this big, mass of documents said, have it bound. And it was bound. And they just said, you know, what is this? Well, it's documents about administration. And they stamped on it on the cover administration report, which it absolutely is not. And it was simply because I've spent now well over a decade in the archives, and I noticed one little missing bit of information, and that's how I caught it. um the the description was that this was a handwritten report, which made no sense because it said it was published in uh, in eighteen eighty one and by eighteen eighty one all reports were printed. They were no longer being handwritten. And so just that one little hint made me go, you know, what is this?" and i found it and frankly had it not been for this amazing set of uh, circumstances it's worse than a needle in a haystack you know it's a needle in a in a billion pieces of hay haystack so uh, i got lucky
1: now that's very cool because uh, well, coincidentally as it turns out uh, both Saryu and me live in a part of bangalore which is about 15 minutes from mythic society yeah. and when i remember, wait there was a piece of history right neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, it, it's quite uh, fascinating, but I think coming to the meat of the book itself, uh, perhaps we could discuss in the context in which um, T Madhavrao delivered these lectures before widening our scope to understand the man himself. What made him? Uh, if you could explain to our listeners, what made him put down these lectures in this particular format?
0: Yeah, thanks. So the the um, you know as in response to your first question, which was why did I pursue this? I, I was saying that. We tend to think uh, it's a common view until at least quite recently that not much was happening in the 19th century, and so this book was kind of eye-opening. But then, as I actually started to study the period and the debates, and especially what was happening in the native states, which has now become something of a of a, of a passion, uh, I realized that not only were, were we wrong that there was you know that there were figures like Madhava Rao, but in fact there was a vivid, active. Um, um, uh, deep intellectual life. It just wasn't always uh, in the register we'd expect. It wasn't in the form of carefully worked out treatises. It wasn't always in the form of uh, perfectly delivered debates in English, like from a Surindranath manager that, you know, you can read and marvel at. Um, you find uh, op-eds in Gujarati newspapers or in Parsi newspapers. You find um, snippets in British newspapers or travelogues of people passing through and the debates they report upon. And you find uh, a Marathi in particular manuscripts that talk about statecraft in Marathi of the older Marathi tradition, the Maratha tradition, I should say, sorry, uh, that really descended from the various Maratha principalities who were trying to grapple with questions of how to govern and what to do. So there was a a literature that emerged around the time of Shivaji, and that was then commented upon by successive generations. So um, there isn't... a. Uh, An immense or a very sophisticated uh, world of ideas amongst these uh, Maratha intellectuals that are debating kingship and trying to figure out exactly what the roles and responsibilities of the king are, but they are trying to figure out how can you take the duties and responsibilities and powers that are described in the classical texts that they are all familiar with, various iterations of the Arthashastra, and how do you make sense of our inherited experience from the Maratha kingdoms? The um, the example given by Shivaji and his successors, the systems of revenue and justice and military conscription built up by the Peshwas and the other sardars who were eventually going to become the Sindhya's and the Holkars, etc. So they're trying to map out all these things. We have these classical texts, we have our actual existing practices, we have the demands of our citizens, and then what really changes in the in the 19th century is the appearance of the British as a fully functioning governmental unit where I, living in Baroda or in uh, Gwalior or in Indore, can see and can travel to and will hear about what's happening in British India. And I can see that land systems are being settled, taxes are being organized in a particular way, justice is being provided, certain mechanisms and institutions are taking shape, responsibilities are being put in place, corruption is not allowed, these kinds of things are always punished, especially as the eighteenth, uh, as the 19th century progresses, the British become ever stricter with their officials on all these counts. So now the, the rulers of these princely states are facing not one, not two, but three different questions. How do I make sense of an ancient tradition that says the king is absolute, and should listen to his priests and the the learned and should undertake all sorts of charitable acts, but doesn't really explain how to make sense of this modern world where I'm being confronted with uh, the British and uh, these other challengers. Two, how do I stay true to my Maratha tradition without giving up the things that identify me as a Maratha nobleman or Sardar or a king? And third, how do I keep up with the British? And so Madhava Rao appears bang in the middle of these three debates. He understands this classical tradition perfectly. He writes letters and... Uh, debates um, these uh, these classical treat- treatises all the time with his friends, with his colleagues, with his subordinates, and with the uh, and with the rulers he encounters. He is because he's himself a Maratha. He's from Tanjore. Uh, he's a Maratha Brahmin from Tanjore. He's aware of the Marat Marathi literature, and he is um, he, he values it. He's actually uh, most people don't realize this. He's one of the first or two people to write modern Marathi poetry. His works are all lost now. Our archives have, have all been damaged and destroyed, and all of his works are no longer in existence. But uh, he was one of the first. And the figures like Kirtane and others, Janadhan Kirtane, the figures that come later that write uh, our very first works of literature in, Mara- in Marathi are all um, are people nurtured by, supported by, and received the patronage of Madhavara. So he's he cares about that tradition. He's not de-racinated. And because he's the first to be educated through the English system, he understands what's making them that successful. And so the great goal of his life is to try and find some way to combine, to integrate, to explain uh, how these systems can coexist, how they can be blended, melded together, and where they will end up rubbing one against the other and what kinds of compromises you should make uh, to get the best out of them that, that you can. So that's his real gift at this moment, and that's uh, the debates that are underway that he has to intervene in. Um, those people that emphasize absolute kingship, those people that emphasize Maratha nobility and, you know, t- to hell with farmers and their, um, you know, pedestrian complaints and uh, and the British who say this whole system is simply uh, um, tyranny or dis- de- despotism. He has to show each there's there's some value in the other.
1: Now, that's, that's fascinating because I think the idea and Again, the person of Madhav Rav comes from a long experience also. He's not just a student of this trying to distill it. He is relying on his personal experience. Uh, Baroda is his third uh, uh, charge as a, as a diwan of a uh, princely state. And very interestingly, and I was sort of reading through uh, in your book, his experiences. one of the first things he does wherever he's appointed as a, a diwan is to increase the revenue. Uh, he finds ways to increase the revenue. He understands that uh, revenue is at the heart of what makes for a successful uh, state. And uh, the fact that he delivers these lectures across uh, and carefully noted, carefully written, uh, very well thought out in terms of the ways in which he puts his ideas together. It it was interesting because, and I think uh, this is something that uh, struck me, was that he doesn't focus much on theory. It's not getting into, I mean, uh, you have put very clearly what he was trying to address, but if one were to read the lectures, it doesn't go so much into theory. His starting point was what was interesting for me. And perhaps we can unpack that a little bit. His starting point was the welfare of the king is in the happiness of the people, right? And he uses happiness to mean a lot of things, starting with safety, starting with you know justice as in criminal justice and good administration and so on. Uh, where does this idea fundamentally come from? Because I think a lot of, not a lot of our uh, listeners will be uh, uh, familiar with Indian ideas on statecraft and governance. So perhaps if we could unpack a little bit of this, where does this idea come from? That the happiness of the ruler lies in the happiness of the people.
0: It is a it is a quintessentially modern idea, and um, for uh, Madhava Rao in particular, it you know he's he's trying to answer a question that I think every educated uh, elite Indian in the 19th century, especially in the early part of the 19th century, is trying to answer, which is, how the British so quickly in the space of 30 or 40 years overwhelm all the native states? And revenue is a central part of that. The British are excellent at uh, both increasing and collecting and managing revenue, which then gives them the capacity to uh, uh, build. Uh, and utilize a modern army and uh, you know in, in in some ways as the you know as the as a sort of observation goes that the uh, the the british uh, win india through banking they you know th- rather than uh, guns they're just simply better at management and Madhava Rao is because he reads um, he's, he's in the first, very first batch, as we say, of students to pass through the very first set of um, educational institutions set up by the British. He reads the classical liberal texts that all emphasize the importance of individuality, personality, uh, and, and equality. Uh, in some ways, uh, you know, can't decide for other people what will make them happy in in every you know what religion they should follow or what uh, they should eat or you know how they should look after their health but we can provide them with the means the the the, the means to pursue these goals themselves and um the, the reason the British have done so well is because they have provided these means that allow people to prosper. They prosper. They pay more taxes. They pay more taxes. The government has more revenue, and it succeeds. Um, whereas the native states, almost all of them from the uh, 1780s onwards, see their finances you know, uh, have a sort of perilous existence. They struggle and struggle. They're um, If one famine comes along or one bad monsoon comes along, uh, because they rely so heavily on agriculture, because they're often indebted, uh, because they lack uh, protections for property, people are unwilling to invest. They have very vulnerable economies. And so Madhava Rao sees this connection. That, you know Between the two things you asked, there is a very important connection. Revenue is essential to survival, but you don't get revenue if you don't have a populace that is actually motivated incentivized as we as we say in today's language incentivized to produce and so he like many liberals of the of the late uh, 18th and early 19th century draws this very strong link between um individual happiness and individual property that you need, there's a link between these that uh, you need property and you need um, independence and security and um, order, rule of law, that kind of order uh, to succeed. So he pursues this ambition, this this vision, uh, in all three uh, places where he's Devani, in Travancore, in Indore, and in Baroda. Um, and the people he's confronting or the, the the vision that he's confronting are those, you know, the famous line from Holker, uh, when a British uh, resident or British officer asks Holker, uh, you know, I hear that you're uh, your, your your subjects are extremely uh, unhappy with the way you're governing taking large sums uh, in tax uh, or oh, in revenue you know uh, 30 50 70% of your produce is taken away in taxes and holker says well you don't have to worry about that no government is popular mine isn't popular yours isn't popular so you know who cares and the, the, this view, with, and Holker in some ways, he's a very shrewd man, but he represents the crudest form of this, which is as long as I have the sword on my side and I pay my, my troops and keep them loyal to me, I can basically extract maximal rents from my hapless um, subjects. And Madhava Rao's goal is to show that sort of person who thinks about maximizing their power in their small universe big fish in a small pond he's trying to re- explain to them there's a much bigger pond with much bigger fish out there and they will consume you if you don't sort yourself out and so and so that's why we see again and again this concern for revenue and happiness because he's trying to correct the the mechanism uh in in these uh, in these polities
1: and that's very interesting because he's walking a tight line uh he it's not as if his charges can become super successful right it's not like he can turn uh whatever Baroda or Holker or Travancore into a nearly self-sustaining modern state because that would go directly against the interests of the British who are considered paramount uh, in that place and at the same time he it, it's fascinating I mean I won't go into too much detail but we see this constant tussle where. He's trying to balance, uh, and and you see even in his lectures, he sort of says, leave these issues to the British, don't get into it, don't upset the resident, don't upset the British, don't misgovern, because that will bring the attention of the British to you. But at the same time, he can't tell the native rulers, you should be as successful and powerful as possible, and you should be the model for the British to follow, because then they will get a little worried, because... Hey, is this guy succeeding too much? And that that's I think perhaps the tension that lies at the heart of a lot of these writings. I want you to be successful, but not too successful.
0: Yeah, that's wonderfully put. You're exactly right. Uh, that's the that's that is very much the tension. And I think we uh, you know, I sometimes still grapple with this, and I try and make sense of Madhavarao's legacy. Uh, there's a there's a line that I particularly love uh, in his letters, where he is exchanging letters with Sh- Sh- Shastri, who's a fellow student of uh, with him uh, in his younger years, and who he uh, who's one of his dearest friends. And um, uh, Shastri is asking, you know, whether he should accept the divanship of a tiny principality near Tanjore that they both know very well, which is corrupt and uh, doesn't have a great future. And, uh, and Madhava Rao says, look, my whole life, my whole life, whenever I've seen a little insect struggling when it's been caught under a rock or trapped in a bubble of water, I free it. I try and do what I can. And so I I love this letter and this line when I saw it because I think it captures Madhava Rao's sensibility. Let me do the best I can under these circumstances. I am not going to be able to achieve all I want, but to improve the world that I found and to alleviate suffering and to save these precious things, these native states, is something good in itself. That's one view he takes. And then at other times, I think, especially when I think of him in his later years, when he is circulating around the Indian National Social Conference, he's playing an important role in the Indian National Congress. Um... And he's one of the only figures in the country that is nationally recognized because he's traveled and worked and spoken and, and written uh, so broadly. He's one of the only people to have a syndicated column where his you know letters are published or his, his op-eds are published in Punjab as they are in uh, in in the in this in, in the south or or in Calcutta. And he can see that there's a point to buying time. Uh, don't antagonize the British. Such that they come in and and uh, and and make your life difficult and have an interest in seeing you fail by time and things may change or well, throughout the time that Madhava Rao is writing, the Russians are coming ever closer to India, which is making the British ever more nervous and anxious. Madhava Rao goes out of his way to say almost nothing about this when he's Diwan. And after he's divan, he tells Indians, look, uh, you know, it's better to side with the British than it is to side with the Russians because the British are ultimately liberal and they leave us the, the hope that we can basically start governing ourselves. We can become like the Australians or the or the Canadians. We can, you know, be members of this broader Commonwealth and, and be self-governing. So um, you can see in in this side of him uh, buying time. And so I I'm always you know I, I you you put it exactly right. I when when people doubt the native states or doubt English-educated, English-trained statesmen in the 19th century as being subservient or as being weak-kneed, I try and remind them that the absolute essence of politics and of realism in politics is understanding what is conceivable, what is doable, what is practical. And to simply dash yourself against the rocks is exactly the opposite of what our classics teach us.
1: Yeah, and that's that's quite fascinating because I think that pragmatism comes through in the way that he writes about a lot of things, which brings me to the next topic of what I sort of want to discuss a little bit are some of the specifics of what he goes into. Uh, and I think what I found most interesting, and I, I, mean, I didn't go into the, I don't want to go into the personal attributes of the thing and all of that. And that might be more interesting for the management uh, folks because it, to, to be very fair, I found it very interesting to read. Uh, but it sort of reminded me that the general principles of this can apply to any organization it isn't limited to just government but I want to specifically come to aspects of the government in terms of in terms of what he suggests the Maharaja should do and how he should put the administration in place and I want to go back to one thing which we started this discussion with which is that is the model that seems to have been followed by Mr. Modi when he was Chief Minister and now increasingly when he was when he is now prime Minister, which is you pick a few people. You empower them. You give them sufficient leeway in their work. You don't interfere. You give them broad targets, so you give them broad mandates, right? You don't try to micromanage, and you know empower them sufficiently that they get carried out. And this is, I suppose, where uh, the, we see the shift. Increasingly, these are not ministers, right? These are not cabinet ministers answerable to the parliament. These are bureaucrats, and. Uh, Madhav Rao's suggestions seem to be the origin of this idea. Perhaps we can unpack that a little bit. What, what sort of made Madhav approach? Of course, he was a bureaucrat, strictly speaking himself. But what gave him the confidence that this is the way that you know uh, rulers should go about, at least in the Indian context?
0: Yeah, um, he is operating in a world of monarchies and, uh, and kingships. And so the real challenge that he faces um, is to is to explain to them the kings that they need to take a back backseat, um, and they they need to allow those who have uh, ability, what we would today call technocrats or meritocrats, those with those with uh, you know ability that you can measure and judge. They they are not uh, self inflated. They are not influencers. They are not people that praise themselves or just have pedigrees, but people that have proven themselves step by step start with small tasks, show you're capable, move up to the next one that you have integrity, that you are um, calm under pressure and able to work in a steady consistent way. Um, and so uh, Madhvara has to do this himself. he starts at the at the lower pegs of the of the bureaucracy in Travancore. firstly of course he proves himself as a tutor and then on and on um, and uh, uh, he believes, in practical uh, success that you, you judge by achievement and accomplishment, not by talk and not by hot air. And so he replicates that as he goes along. And he says to kings in each of these three kingdoms, um, give me a chance. Let me find people that I will train that I will test and sort out in this way. I will expose them to challenges, see how they perform, those that do well will be raised up. They will be paid well, they will be given my full confidence. I will protect them from you and your favorites criticizing them. Um, and you must allow me to 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 let them um, to develop in this way. And in every one of these three uh, principalities, he develops, uh, a cabinet as he sometimes calls it that is uh, not a cabinet in our sense of you know but, or kitchen cabinet as the as you would say in the british sense your personal um subordinates and advisors. and they're all absolutely remarkable people there are no uh duffers as we'd say in his in his lineup um as soon as someone does poorly they are shunted out which is quite rare because they've already gone through such a complicated process to rise up his his system and they are, he doesn't interfere with them. So a good example is that when he gives, when he gives Saiji Rao the lectures on good government, he only gives him lectures on the principles that of the system he set up, but on specific areas like the military or the tax system or the judicial system, he picks his own lieutenants who are people of the highest caliber and he makes them give the lectures. He says to them, I have faith in you. And he tells the king, you should have faith in them. So this is the mark of a truly, uh, you know, a person, um, as I sort of say in the introduction, a person who spent their life dealing with men and matters. Uh, you've you've uh, spent your time uh, seeing what actually in reality in practice makes uh, systems and places function. Uh, delegate, delegate to the right kinds of people and reward them when they function well. And so, um, you know, these these are, I guess, uh, to, to summarize things that he has learned through trial and error.
1: Yeah, and what sort of struck me was um, the fact that a lot of emphasis that he places is on what today we would call improving state capacity. Um, and he wasn't starting in a complete clean state, a clean slate, right? Uh, you did have, and as we sort of hinted at earlier in this discussion, uh, there were, Sardar, there were various Hangers on there were various favorites people who believed governance is an exercise in me seeking maximum rent in some way possible uh and you know he goes into some depth as to say keep away from these people don't indulge them don't give them a hearing stay away from it and he comes to this point about look you if if you need to do this if you need to stay in power and stay out of trouble you have to improve State capacity, and I think the three or four areas that we have hinted at. I mean, I'm not about the specific principles. Right? I and mean, he has different people, as you mentioned, who go into the law aspect of it. But I, I found it sort of fascinating that he devotes an entire starts with the police, which uh, you know it, it may not be the most inter- it may not be the most interesting place to start off on go- governance. Police, really. But what struck me, and this is uh, putting this particular piece in a modern context. The Indian police force was not like the UK police force. The British constantly, uh, consciously chose a model for a police to keep a people in check. It wasn't to kind of promote law and order for the betterment. I mean, all that happened. But the design and the core function of that was how do we keep the next revolt from happening? How do we ensure nobody gets too big for their boots? And, you know, how do we ensure that we know absolutely everything that's going on? And Madhu comes with a different perspective and says, listen, your people are not going to be happy if they are always worried about their lives, their property, their limb. And this is how you need to set up a police force. And this, this, this difference, I don't know if it, it came through to me clearly, but I don't know if this is what he was trying to do, which is to perhaps give an alternate vision of a state from the colonial one, which like it existed next door.
0: Exactly. yeah, you hit it uh, you hit the nail on the head. that's exactly it. that what makes his uh, lectures so important for us, why they're a, 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 a window both into the past but also a kind of foretelling of the of the state that we deal with today is because as you you put it exactly rightly, the colonial state was concerned with law and order from the sense of preventing or stifling threats. Um, it was not oriented towards, um, you know, particularly cultivating happiness or promoting merit or, uh, you know, um, fostering trust or those sorts of things. So the, as we say, the kabari, the, the, that system of spying and espionage is is essential to the colonial police. Madhava Rao is not interested in that world. He doesn't, he, even in his, um, in each of the principalities that he works in, the kingdoms he works in, he does not use the police in that way at all. He rather relies on producing uh, good governance and winning over the people uh, in that way. And so the the model that he's trying to create, the template or the framework he's trying to create is still relevant to us today. Because now when we are not dealing with a colonial state but our own state that we've inherited, that we are trying to make work for us, we have to do many of the things he did. You have to explain to people why corruption is not a good thing because you don't have some British officer who's very well paid and uh, comes and kicks you around and then you know goes home. You have to do it to yourself. You have to govern yourself. That's why the native states are so important because they're a precursor or a forerunner to the challenges we face today. And Madhava Rao was front and center in that. How do you explain to a nobleman that you shouldn't take nazars you shouldn't take money uh, honorary payments to recognize someone as owning land how do you explain to a nobleman who thinks their job is to you know maintain "Quote unquote law and order," by which they mean their hierarchy with them on on top. How do you explain to them that no? As Madhava Rao did in Baroda, he t- said, "No, the sardars are just as amenable to civil law as any other person. It makes no difference. Uh, aristocracy has nothing to do with law, uh, and uh, and the criminal law applies to all people. Now you have to explain that to a Bahubali in Bihar or something. Yeah. It's the same problem. And uh, similarly, you you know you want to." Uh, uh, uh tell the police that your purpose is not to inflict violence and intimidate uh populations but to sort out their disputes one amongst the other um and so Madhava Rao does this himself hands-on in Travancore when he, what makes him famous is that he has to deal with the problem of smuggling in southern Travancore nobody wants to do it it's a messy job it's dangerous and um uh you know uh um, whoever had whoever tries it ends up using so much violence that they get criticized by the missionaries for being indiscriminate. And then the missionaries complain to Madras, and Madras holds up Travancore. So you, it's a mess. Madavara goes there, and of course, one, he promises and delivers severe punishment, but not ghastly or anything brutal, but just you know, punishment per the law for anyone that that engages in smuggling. But he also hires the right kinds of people, pays them well. Tells them instead of getting your salary from bribes, you will get your salary from the state. Simple things, right? These are this is two plus two, but to actually do it, to genuinely build this basic state capacity, requires a person. As Madhava Rao says again and again in his life, you have to go out, roll up your sleeves, live with the real out in the in the in the taluk, and get this done. Um, and so um, you're absolutely right when you say his purpose is state capacity, and his goal is to show how you can build state capacity in Indian conditions.
1: And that that for me, I think was eye opening because it's not this part of India's history to go back to something we started this discussion with doesn't really get covered whether in conventional history, and I mean, I'm not a former graduate in history, but even as I think back to the lectures that we had on legal history and some of our, we only focus on the British India part of the history we focus on, yes, Macaulay brought in the IPC which was passed, this whole range of legislation drafted by this genius, James Fitz, James Stephens, the administrative measures, the attempts at reform. A lot of it uh, was focused on how the British governed India. And to me, what was quite fascinating was to, at least through this book, and I hope to read more around this area also, to me, what was very fascinating was the fact that you had an not, not, I won't say an entire alternative, because it had to exist with this framework, but at least a different way of thinking and approaching, understanding the complexity and taking a realist and pragmatic approach. And finally, before we go to the topic that I also want to end this discussion with, which is his constitution, uh, you sort of, in this book, highlight that Sayaji Rao Gaikwad learned, listened, learned, but didn't always put this into practice. And I think it it will be good to like close the loop on that as to how much of this was you know lasted longer than Madhav Rao's own intervention.
0: Yeah, I it's a um, it's a it's a challenge, and I have sympathies on all sides. You know, I think the 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 important thing for an intellectual historian is to is to see the world from the viewpoints of the different participants and not to simply um, push. Uh, or support, blindly support one position. And so I can also see the challenges that Sayaji Rao confronted. He was given this, what I think is excellent, invaluable, invaluable advice by Madhava Rao. But sayaji Rao has different constituencies to satisfy and please. He can't cut loose the Maratha nobility who ask him, are you really one of us? You were picked and appointed by the British. Um, uh, you displaced uh, the real uh, Khande Rao, the real... Uh, King uh, who was you know gotten rid of in a very dubious trial. so show us that you are one of us um, he also has his own um, um uh, sens- sensibilities, his own insecurities he wants to prove himself. Uh, to be not just to please Maratha nobility around him in Baroda or in in, uh, Pune, but he wants to also himself live up to an idea uh, of being a king, of being independent, of being uh, uh, learned and and, uh, worldly wise. And he's hemmed in in all directions by the British who annoy him and he ends up in a very confrontational relationship with him. So he gets this advice and he isn't always able to follow it through because he has uh, himself, his family, uh, his uh, his subjects and his uh, his um, aristocracy all of whom expect different things of him, and he can't only please Madhava Rao. And so I understand these constraints he's operating in. I think the great error that he he makes, uh, the, the one uh, place in which he does go wrong, where he doesn't take Madhava Rao seriously enough, is what you just referred to is the, the importance of constitutions. Madhava Rao does not want him, of course, Madhava Rao is not unrealistic at all. He understands, he himself has dealt with for 35 years, all the different constraints uh, that Native states bring with them, but Madhava Rao emphasizes that look, you can make all of these concessions in your daily life. You can spend money on um, on on charity, even if it isn't the most efficient way to to provide welfare. You know, you can provide welfare through hospitals better than you can through charity. But still, you've got to do these things because they're part of the cultural role of a monarch. Fine, do them, but promise that you will not take more than ten percent of the revenues as your privy purse and. Pay out charities from there, not from public revenues. Um, don't appoint, you, you know, your family will say, aren't we nobility? Don't we deserve stature? Give them roles, give them honorary positions, but don't make them actually the head of the military or don't actually make them judges because they're not qualified to do these things. So Madhavrao Rao is trying to show that you can make these concessions in creative ways, but at the end of the day, you have to make a choice finally about whether you are going to put rules and systems in place. This is not about democracy. It's not about popular sovereignty. It's not about giving up your kingship, but about accepting limits. And I think the the great mistake that Saidi Rao makes is overestimating as kings almost always uh, do, Overestimating their own energy, their longevity, their cleverness, and then when they are outwitted, they oscillate immediately from ex- exuberance and an activity to um, depression and lethargy. And so he, you know, he just has this career that goes and fits and starts and doesn't accomplish all that it could have um, had he really put in place a constitution as Madhva Rao encouraged him to do. Uh, he may really have given the British a run for their money. And he may have substantially changed the direction of uh, the debates we had in the 1930s and 40s about what direction we should take, uh, uh, what direction India in general should take. Because by not having put a constitution in place, um, the, the native states, most importantly Baroda, made it clear to people that there was no hope uh, of an indigenous Indian alternative, the only way forward was something like uh, um, uh, uh, a European uh, social democracy sort of model, um, uh, with all sorts of restrictions uh, that later proved quite costly: restrictions on individual liberty, uh, restrictions on private property, uh, restrictions on uh, speech and and, and choice uh, that hurt us because we had no viable alternative idea out there in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that Sajira could have provided, but but failed to.
1: That's a, that's a fascinating point, because I was just going to come to that. Uh, when you see uh, Madhav Rao's constitution, which is in the book, uh, what struck me immediately was the Charter of Rights. Uh, and I think I did not expect a Charter of Rights like that to turn up in a document at that period of time. To me, it indicated this is someone who not only knew his British law very well, he had read and researched American law on the point because the word that the word that caught my attention were the words due process of law. And we have recorded an episode uh, with uh, uh, about an entire book written about these four words and how they ended up out of the Indian constitution. And uh, I, I happened to read your book after we recorded that podcast and it immediately struck me that, Hang on. The common argument that we were just borrowing this from the Americans after their experience uh, with FDR and the New Deal and the US Supreme Court misses the fact that there was somebody here who was proposing this um, way back in the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century itself, and uh, who is in this constitution uh, is not just like generally saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. He's putting in place some of the structures to ensure that there are separation of powers, that there is the, a proto-independence of the judiciary topic that always has haunted us. And uh, who who has put in place this charter of rights? And to me, I was honestly surprised because I was like, where does this come from? Where, where, does, where did these set of ideas come together in this way? Is it just that he's putting together what he thinks are the best things I've taken from different constitutions, or is there like a larger vision that he has in mind for, you know, what an Indian state should look like with the governance framework that he's talked about and a formal charter as a constitution?
0: Yeah, uh, this is a, it's a very profound question. I think he is, there's a little bit of both in the sense that initially as he is reading widely, he is... Uh, trying to take what we today call best practices or best models from different places and trying to see uh, what makes them tick. But I think as he moves along in his career, particularly his experience of working under Holker, who is, as I was describing, not the most rule-bound of rulers, um, he starts to realize that you need to provide a much stronger defense of uh, liberties than norms, right? That's the, because in the English model in the English system. Um, uh, liberties are a product of historical experience, of norms that have grown up over time, that are concretized through practice or precedent, our favorite word. Uh, right? And he realizes, look, not only do I have weak precedents, if any, um, rulers just don't seem very good at obeying or following precedent. The whole joy that they get is considering themselves absolute, that they can simply overturn precedent. Um, Of course, things like cultural precedent and familial precedent that they're very uh, uh, careful about. But when it comes to the property and the rights of uh, poor, usually defenseless, voiceless uh, farmers or tradesmen or things like that, they, you know, have no problem uh, exacting fines and levies and unexpected costs on, on, on businesses that completely destroy the incentive to invest. And so Madhavara starts to think of the American example from this more philosophical aspect, that it provides, that rights provide a defense that norms alone won't. And he is also responding to, I guess, one more uh, big, very important thing that we in India have, have underestimated, I think, is that over the 19th century, just as the 18th century saw the English triumph in uh, in India, and we are astonished between 1775 to about 1810 1820. In the space of about 30 years, they they have this incredible success and they build this flourishing uh, empire, the Americans in the 19th century, particularly as the 19th century rolls on and uh, and the, and the civil war is over, which Madhva Rao notices very carefully, and he notices the importance of, for example, the abolition of slavery, the the, the protection of rights. He's read his Tookeville and seen this, uh, this danger inherent in the American system of uh, insufficient protection of uh, of um, um, African Americans and so on. So he he's noticed all of these things. He's been reading them, and then as the century progresses in the era after the civil war, he sees America grow he sees american strength expand american influence um suddenly catapulted up the ranks and just as in an earlier generation they'd said what had made the english succeed they're now in the 1880s, 1890s start to ask the question, what's made Americans succeed? And they also ask what's made the Japanese succeed? So you get this split in Indian thinking, should we follow Japan? Should we follow America? And after the 1890s, you start to see Indians migrate to these two places, which they had not done before. And so Madhavrao Rao is an early indicator of that emerging realization that there's something special about the American experience, distinctive, I should say, about the American experience, uh, that, that we have something to learn from. So that's where that rights story, rights talk starts to also come from.
1: Yeah, because let's sort of keep in mind just the idea that the ruler is to be bound by a written text or a document is quite radical for its time the british themselves didn't adopt it i mean they have the larger concept of a rule of law they don't have a single constitutional statute they have a bunch of constitutional laws but nothing like the american experience and the fact that to me he reached out and this this came i suppose in the specific context of him suggesting let's create like a draft constitution uh, for uh, all princely states not just for baroda something which they can follow and he pitches it to the british interestingly that that is what i found fascinating uh, he pitches it as, uh, this is sort of like a charter that you use to say, I won't interfere if you follow the constitution. The British were like, this is too complicated for us. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, 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 but for me, that was that, was, that was a very really interesting way because he turns constitutionalism itself into a way of limiting the British's power, even though it doesn't apply to them. But to say that you, know, you also agree to this so that there is confidence and so that there's uh, better governance, uh, but I want to, but before I close out this discussion, one area which, this, this this sort of left me feeling was somebody who had covered so much in his writing and so much in his thought. One area which I felt, and I, I wrote this article before this podcast was recorded, uh, mm-hmm. both in his uh, uh, lectures to Sayaji Rao and then also in his, constitu- his proto-constitution, one thing that is seemingly absent is a notion of social reform. And I, I sort of say that caste is a little bit of a blind spot. I don't know if it is a blind spot is the right word, because somebody sort of afterwards said that it's not the right way to call it, because it, maybe it wasn't in his thinking yet, but around the same time you have Mahatma Phule, you have there is the stirrings of a social reform movement in India. Uh, and and I, I didn't see evidence of that having influenced his thinking, or maybe this is not the where it influences thinking, but it'd be interesting to see how did he approach this thought, or did he say, that, see, Indian society is fine, let's not get into it it shouldn't interfere, it'll reform if it's... How did he think of social reform? That is something
0: that... Uh, yeah, this is a, a great question. And uh, um, the, the, there's, there's a happy answer to it. Uh, it's not in... Uh, rao thought Indian society was in urgent need of social reform. So he was a very strong pro- proponent of uh, social reform and particularly of, uh, of Hindu society. And... Uh, um, that ranges from the caste system, which he, uh, uh um, uh, uh, opposed, uh, and in all of its, you know, horrible gradations in terms of things like intercaste dining or all, of, he, he, he was in, in favor of, you know, all of, all of these reforms and played, uh, he was a founding member along with his uh, brother, Raghunath Rao, his, his, uh, cousin, um, he was a founding member of the indian national social conference and his uh, most important weapon so to speak was ng uh, ranade uh, who you know we consider the quintessential modernizing liberal who just simply wants to emphasize each person's individuality each person's individual rights um, and and uh, and happiness uh, and uh, um uh, Rao doesn't live long enough for most of the National Social Conference's objectives to be realized later in the 20th century. But on those sort of elements of um, of, uh, uh, caste and uh, um, uh, women's emancipation is probably the most important issue, I think, over the course of his life. Um, um, So women, caste, and to a lesser extent, Um, uh, matters of religious uh, tolerance. He always builds multi-religious, multi-caste cabinets, Um, um, but it's not something that he trumpets very loudly or aggressively, because I think it's it's just best done quietly and steadily. So there's that whole element to him in terms of social harmony, stability, all of that. We can put that in one side, and let's talk about the other two. So on women, he uh, plays a fundamental role in Travancore. Uh, him and uh, uh, one of his uh, predecessors, also from Tanjore, who's also a, a divan in uh, Travancore, play the role of setting up uh, the first schools in the Indian subcontinent that educate girls, uh, advanced schools or colleges that will also later go on to take um, girls after they finish school, uh, training girls in places like Baroda in vocational skills so that they can actually work. Um, he... Um, uh, is involved with you know one of the things i noticed is that in any court or in any um of these kingdoms that he goes to you start to see women being painted women being photographed you start to see women in public life at functions and events um, uh, you see you see them uh, make remarks uh, he will write speeches for them if they are uh, not confident of doing so but they he you know he will write speeches and then they will read them out or they will ask him to read it out while they're present so he has this um, uh, you know, he has uh, five daughters of his own. All five are educated. All five uh, have pictures painted. are uh, are mixed freely with uh, uh, people of different religions and and castes. And so he really does not, uh, in his p- private life or any of these things, um, maintain these old traditions or norms. That's on 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 gender in particular. On caste, I think the important thing to understand is that his goal is to minimize. Um, and, and to limit as much as he can in a very orthodox, very conservative set of societies where uh, reform is a bad word, his job is to try and minimize evil, uh, to minimize harm. So whether it's in Travancore, where he pushes for uh, the abolition of uh, um all sorts of uh, inequities against uh, uh, Dalits and uh, and lower castes, whether it's in Baroda, where he says, uh, Brahmins cannot be excused from a capital punishment. Uh, They cannot be excused from um, crimes. They will be tried in courts, just like everyone else. Uh, In um, uh, Indore, where he says, uh, usually, what we would today call OBC uh, uh, farmers, uh, who are mistreated or maltreated in prisons, cannot be put in, you know, subhuman conditions. So he builds one of his signatures is building modern uh, legal systems and modern prisons that minimize or limit or mitigate the harm that's done to these individuals. He can't, as a as a lonely divan with a small group of, uh, you know, lawyer. Uh, capable um, uh, subordinates, there's only so much he can accomplish in these short tenures. And what he focuses on is minimizing suffering as much as he can. And so uh, he can't do any of the things that the British can in the 20th century, where they can, you know, have passed more sweeping laws. Um, He can't uh, Uh, ban sati or, you know, uh, uh, outlaw child marriage. But what he can do is write to the British, as he does, asking for, um, uh, um, he plays one of the strongest roles in in allowing widows to be remarried. And he does it behind the scenes. He he writes some letters in public, but most of it's in private. And you see it in the archives and the correspondence of the governors and the governor generals. So that's the role he plays because he thinks at that time that if route for him uh, to produce these kinds of changes. So that's why we don't see so much of it up front and you won't notice it uh, straight away, but quietly in day-to-day governance and in the background through these messages and and, uh, associations that he builds or funds or supports, he is working hard at trying to produce change.
1: Thanks Rahul. And uh, just one final question before we close. Uh, Why do you think we've sort of lost this particular stream of thought. Um, Because I I was thinking through our conversation, who would you say was like an intellectual successor? Who would you say was inspired by his work and his actions and thinking and how did they inform the freedom movement? But as we've sort of discussed, it it seems to have been that he was there, he did his things and people did other things. It (laughs) seemed like, you know, he kind of, it was a stream which sort of eventually led to that larger river but why, why do you think we sort of lost this particular set of uh, ideas and this thoughts of this uh, gentleman
0: yeah it's the it's it's in some ways the story that you know i've spent a decade searching up and we'll probably spend the next decade writing about in all sorts of different ways which is what happened to the liberal tradition in india why did liberalism uh, you know there's a famous question that ram guha asked long ago you know where's the absent why is where's the absent liberal what happened to liberalism in india and um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a complicated story, all centered around the last decade of the 19th century, where these two great developments of the 19th century suddenly just implode. One is, um, uh, English educated Indian liberals like Madhva Rao and Ranade, all of whom are basically more or less run out of the Congress, which, um, becomes on the one hand, more extremist under people I, you know the term extremist is not is actually incorrect and misleading but becomes more militant or more confrontational let's put it that way it's not gradualist Madhva Rao is a gradualist and the Indian National Congress becomes militant or one wing of it becomes militant and that means people like Ranade and Gokhale. this is the tradition Madhva Rao, Ranade, Gokhale. that and then it ends that's it. Uh, that tradition, maybe Motilal Nehru is the last person in that tradition, and that tradition that focuses on constitutionalism, institutions, rule of law, um, and uh, individual liberties um, gets gets kind of laughed off the platform uh, by militants. And then, much more troublingly, I think, is that at the end of the 19th century, it gets run off the platform by um, a mixture of what we would call Democrats and eventually socialists and I don't mean this in a pejorative way what I mean is their idea that reform has to occur in this incremental way that simply opening up the franchise to a um, uh, to uh, overnight um, or that uh, institutions can be created you know with the wave of a wand uh the, this thinking, that you can have resources to redistribute, as socialists think or uh, thought. You know, if, if you just got rid of the British, India has enough uh, to uh, to distribute and feed. And uh, um, if you organize labor and you tame capital, uh, good things will flow uh, instantly. This sort of unworldliness, which is what the what I would describe this second strain as. So, if one was militant, the other was unworldly, utopian. These two strains emerged in a sudden burst. In the 1890s, and then took off in the first decade of the 20th century, in, in, in between 1900 and 1910, before the British clamped down on the militant side and allowed the utopian side to keep developing. These two together basically took the air out of the room, uh, and Indian liberalism um, uh, faded uh, pretty quickly away after that. And so Um, You know, I think the question we need to ask ourselves today, the word liberalism has has become a a dirty word and uh, or or an insult almost and it's a real shame because we um, uh, what we often describe as liberals in India today are unrecognizable to liberals in the 19th century and Indian liberals I'm talking about not not British or American ones. Um, uh, people like Madhva Rao or Shesha Sastri or the people that, or Ranade, um, uh, you know, were, were figures that cared greatly about human well-being, individual well-being, human happiness, prosperity, order and stability, um, and, and done with decency and decorum. And so um, it is worth our making an effort to really try and recover and restore uh, this side of our story, uh, because we've, I think, rightly become disillusioned with the utopian story, um, and uh, we don't have this colonial uh, opponent now that requires, uh, you know, the the, the militant strain in, in quite that way. And so um, as we cast about for ideas about what sort of state and what sort of society we want to build. I think uh, the ideas that we see in Madhava Rao, caring about public goods, as you put it, state capacity, which is essential, um, delivering the nuts and bolts of everyday life to, to citizens, uh, I think that's very important. And it's things that are easily taken for granted, but hard, hard, hard to do.
1: And I guess that's, that's perhaps where a lot of intellectual inquiry is still left to be done. And we look forward to reading your work on this, and uh, hoping to host you more discussions on Ganatantra for the next uh, few books that hopefully come out uh, on this line of thought. But that's all that we have time for. Rahul, thank you so, so much for taking time out for what has been a fascinating and a very illuminating conversation. Uh, and uh, we would love to host you once again. Thank you so much for giving your time.
0: Thank you so much, Alok. It's been a huge pleasure. Thanks for these really great questions.
1: Yes. And uh, before we go, uh, please do stay tuned for more episodes. Thank you also to our production assistant, Afra, who makes our episodes possible.